The title of this morning's message is Consider His Faithfulness. This morning we're going to be looking at the third chapter of Hebrews where we will find yet another one of those pesky, scary-sounding verses. <laughs> These scary-sounding verses only sound scary because we tend to read the Bible as if it was written to us, where we live, here and now, and it wasn't. <laughs> and it makes a huge difference. It's somebody else's mail that we're learning from. I was taught early in my Christian walk to put my name in the Scripture to make them more personal, which is great. If the Scripture is, For God so loved Valerie, <laughs> That one works really good, but I did it with all kinds of verses. How about this one, Jeremiah 50, verse 31? Behold, I am against you, Valerie. <laughs> oh, proud one, declares the Lord, God of hosts, for your day has come. Oh, no! <laughs> the time when I will punish you, Valerie. Oh, no! <laughs> now, I know none of you have ever done that, right? <laughs> but many Christians read Old Covenant verses, and they think that those verses pertain to them. And they don't. Don't put your name in an Old Covenant verse. <laughs> so when I inserted, when I used to insert my name into ones like this, ones that had nothing to do with me, I found that I, there was guilt and shame and condemnation and fear because I didn't know what I had done. I just assumed I had done something. <laughs> and that I was going to get a good spanking. <laughs> but that verse has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Babylon mistreating Israel. I was reading other people's mail and putting my name in it. That's not good theology. <laughs> So it really matters that we understand the historical context. In other words, what's going on at that time in history. The audience relevance. There, the father was talking to Babylon from the prophet to tell Babylon, God is against you. You're going to get what's coming to you. It had nothing to do with me. So it matters. <laughs> it matters that we understand who it was written to and why it was written because of the different covenants. In particular, <laughs> the historical context of Hebrews is the last of the last days of the Old Covenant system. Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem and the temple would be completely decimated within 40 years. In chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus pronounces a considerable amount of woe upon the scribes and Pharisees. That's the famous woe chapter. Every verse is woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, which means judgment, judgment, judgment. <laughs> but he says this in verse 36. This is Jesus speaking. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who have been sent to you, how often I would have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her brood under her wings but you refused. <laughs> this is Jesus saying, hey, y'all, <laughs> this is going to happen. Behold, I like this, your house is left to you desolate. He doesn't say, and God's house is left to you desolate. He says, your house. 
The word house is an interesting word. It can mean dwelling where you live. It can mean your family or household. Or it can mean temple. It's used in all of those ways. And for this particular verse, it means all of those things. It meant where you live is going to be decimated. Your entire household, as far as people, is going to be decimated. And the temple is going to be decimated. You would have thought they would have listened a little closer. <laughs> now, we, for the most part, don't realize how stupendous their temple was and all of its surrounding properties. It was built with Nehemiah, but Herod's kept adding to it. It was really stupendous and glorious. It was covered in gold, gold and marble, so that when the sun hit it just a certain way, it looked like a golden mountain with snow on top. It was amazing, right? <laughs> so Jesus tells them, hey, your house is going to be left to you desolate. But his disciples didn't understand what he was talking about because they kind of pointed out to Jesus just how silly they thought he sounded. Jesus has just announced publicly, everything's going, everything's going to be demolished. And verse 1, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. You know, the ones they've seen their whole life. <laughs> Why did they suddenly want to point out the buildings that they had seen their whole life as being so wonderful and glorious? Because they thought what Jesus said sounded silly. Look at these buildings, Jesus. There's no way they're going to be decimated. You're so silly, Jesus. <laughs> Verse 2. But he answered them. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So basically, Jesus reiterates the prophecy as if to say, you're not listening. <laughs> I said what I said, and it will come to pass just like I said. Verse 3. As he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. I love this. <laughs> Before, Jesus is publicly pronouncing woe, and they're like, we don't get it. We don't understand what you're talking about. So they go to him privately. They don't ask why I wasn't there in public. Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. The King James translates that last word as world, which was the problem. People thought that it was the end of the world that <laughs> he was talking about, and it was the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. There were more false messiahs between the cross and the destruction of the temple than any other time in history. Jesus was right. Verse 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. The end of what? <laughs> not the end of the world, not the end of our, our life, not the end of the country, not the end of anything other than the age, the old covenant age and the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. All nations, Israel included. 
<laughs> believers were hated by national Israel. They were hated by the Romans. They were illegal. Everybody hated believers. <laughs> Verse 10, and then many will fall away. And I like the King James better than this one because it says be offended. Okay, why would a Jew be offended? Because they believe if you are right with God, life should be happy and smooth. If you were wealthy, God loved you. If you were healthy, God loved you. <laughs> okay, so Jesus is saying, believers, and he's talking to his disciples. This is what's in store for you. Anybody want to sign up? <laughs> Many will fall away and uh, betray one another and hate one another. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. Is it talking about believers? Yeah, he is. He says it's going to get really, really hard. They're going to kill you. They're going to hate you. It's not going to be easy. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word there is sozod, saved. Saved, healed, delivered, protected, provided for, and made whole. Safe. One who endures to the end will be safe. Not saved spiritually. Not their sins will be forgiven if they endure all of that and get to the end. They'll earn their salvation. No. He's not talking about their spiritual salvation. He's talking about their physical salvation. And our so great salvation includes the physical salvation. So he's telling them, you can get through all of this. Some of you are going to lay down your life, but you can get through this, okay? <laughs> he never promises them a rose garden. <laughs> he's saying that those who continue to believe the words of Jesus will make it safely through to the end of the age and even through the destruction of the temple and the city. But it's a choice. They could be spiritually saved and not physically saved if they chose not to endure. Verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. <laughs> and again, people misread what the author is intending with the word world. Here it is talking about the whole known world of Rome, the entire Roman Empire. It's not talking about the whole world. <laughs> when is the end going to come? What does the end have to do? Is it the end of the world? No, it's the end of their covenant. It's the end of their temple. It's the end of their whole Jewish world. The Greek word translated as world in English, according to the Strong's, oikumene, that's how you say it. And it means land. It doesn't mean the whole world. In fact, the, the strong says, the terrene part of the globe. <laughs> dirt. <laughs> it's talking about the dirt that they walk on. It means the Roman Empire. It doesn't mean the whole world. So unfortunately, this verse does not tell us when Jesus is physically returning to set up his earthly kingdom. Many ministers are saying, if we get this gospel out, as soon as everybody knows where Jesus is coming back, Nope. <laughs> That's not what this says. <laughs> that would be nice. We'd be close, right? <laughs> but that's not what this says. <laughs> In context, it simply states that the good news of Jesus will be preached throughout the whole Roman Empire before the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And it was. Just like Jesus said it would be. So these passages of Scripture very clearly define historical context of the book of Hebrews. Life was very erratic and even often horrific. And many believers did die for their faith through no fault of their own. But for all those who ended up walking out of Jerusalem when it was surrounded by armies, those were the ones who chose to endure till the end. They chose to believe and trust in the faithfulness of God the Father and God the Son through the indwelling Holy Spirit. They chose to believe what Jesus said was true. And then they chose to behave like what Jesus said was true. And I think this has everything to do with chapter 3 of Hebrews. So, with the historical context in mind, <laughs> people are grabbing Christians off the street and throwing them into prisons and having them beheaded and throwing them to lions. That's your context. <laughs> he says, Wherefore, holy brethren, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 first and then go back one by one. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, to the Father that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end. That is where people get scary. Uh-oh, what happens if I lose my way between now and the end? <laughs> what if I take a detour? Will I be lost? <laughs> no. You won't. <laughs> but people get scared. And because we don't know how to interpret that last verse in particular, it is used to tell Christians, if you don't endure, you're not completely saved. You have to endure to the end. And when you die, if you've been faithful, then you're saved. You're part of God's house. That's not what this verse is talking about at all. <laughs> and that's what we're going to get to. Chapter 3 begins with, wherefore, which actually means for what reason, or that which answers the question why. The wherefore should make us look back to see why we should consider Jesus, especially in the midst of grief and sorrow and fear and hardship. And we can see this in the last four verses of chapter 2, and it tells us exactly why we should look to Jesus and consider Jesus in the midst of hard trials. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Speaking of Jesus, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that's us, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. 
For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure or comfort them that are tempted. I added the words compassionate and trustworthy. So often people interpret the word mercy and merciful as you not getting what you deserve. <laughs> and it means so much more than that. It means so much more than that. They did not deserve any of the persecution. So what he's saying is this word merciful here, it would be better translated compassionate. Jesus is very compassionate. And the word compassion means co-passion, co-suffer. What he wants to do is enter into our suffering and alleviate it. That's what compassion does. Compassion says, I can't leave you that way. Jesus looks at us and says, I can't leave you that way. I can't leave you in your suffering. I want to alleviate it. And then he's faithful. He's trustworthy. <laughs> he was completely obedient to the Father and the Father's will every day, every minute, every hour for his entire life. Does he understand suffering? Was anyone ever more rejected than Jesus? More betrayed than Jesus? <laughs> Does he know how to handle that? He does. That's the point. No matter how hard life is, Jesus really does understand. And he knows how to comfort us when we are tempted to throw in the towel, to do something different, to even give up on God. We're talking about these Hebrews. They were tempted to try to save their own lives by going back to Judaism. And it makes perfect sense if you think about it. <laughs> because it was the same father. We can still go worship Yahweh. We just have to publicly renounce Jesus. And you didn't just slip back into synagogue after you've been missing for a while. <laughs> you had to publicly renounce Jesus in order to go back to Judaism. So because it was so dangerous for Christians, that's what they were thinking of doing, throwing in the towel. We'll come back to Jesus later <laughs> when everybody's safe. <laughs> if anyone was ever tempted to try to avoid suffering, it would have had to have been Jesus on the cross because he could have gotten down. <laughs> and he chose to be faithful to the Father and to us and to endure all that he went through. He didn't put himself first. Just like that song we sang. He didn't put himself first. He put us first. Our salvation, our eternity first. He's trustworthy. If somebody is willing to put you first, they're usually very trustworthy. <laughs> but they were afraid. Primarily, that was their temptation, to be afraid, to throw Jesus out just for a little while. <laughs> but they were afraid of death. They were afraid of the shame associated with being a Christian. They were afraid of condemnation from God. If they go back, they have to reject Jesus. Oh no, this isn't working out very well. They were tempted to fear that Jesus really wasn't enough. This was new. New covenant was really, really new. Is Jesus really enough? Temple's still here. Maybe we need to bring lambs while the temple's still here. <laughs> they were tempted to fear that they weren't strong enough to endure whatever the future held. They were tempted to fear failure, either Jesus's or our own. 
Now, we know that Jesus is God and he is incapable of failing us. But the temptation can still come, especially in the midst of such hardship. Is Jesus really trustworthy? Can I trust him to get me through this? Can I trust him that his word is true? It doesn't look like it's working out so well. (laughs) They were tempted. So the author says, in light of the fact that Jesus completely understands human suffering and human temptation, because he was and still is completely human, then he is the perfect object of our super abundant attention. Remember from chapter 2 that tells us that we need to give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, which means we need to give more super abundant attention. I love that. Uh, So much better than give more earnest heed. That sounds boring. (laughs) We need to give more super abundant attention to our so great salvation. They didn't understand how great their salvation was. We need to give super abundant attention to our so great salvation. And we can't do that apart from focusing on Jesus. So why do we need to give more super abundant attention to our so great salvation? Because our hearts need to be established again and again and again. And our Father's absolutely free, absolutely free, absolutely free loving kindness. Our Father is absolutely free grace. Our Father is absolutely free favor. Because it's so easy for us to forget. <laughs> because it's only when we are established and thoroughly convinced of our Father's love and kindness towards us. See, they had to choose to believe in Jesus to get through all of that. That we will be able to trust him. See, you've got to come to the point where you're going to step out of that boat. Okay, I'm trusting you that I'm not going to drown. I trust you that I'm not going to die. I'm trusting you that you're going to make a way. I'm trusting you. They have to get to the point where our hearts say, I trust him no matter what. And that's what the author is trying to get across to his readers. Again, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. The author calls his Jewish brothers holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. This term could include both those who were saved and those who were not, because they were all called to participate in their respective covenants. But I think the author believes he's speaking primarily to believing Jews. (laughs) But he is trying to persuade all of his readers, both the saved and unsaved, that they can and should let go of all of the old covenant system including their loyalty to Moses. Because Jesus is better. (laughs) He's still on that thing. Jesus is better. (laughs) And Jesus is better because it is only through him that we are partakers of the heavenly realities of salvation. And it's on those realities that we are invited to continually partake, continually feast on. The truth that we are born again, sanctified sons of God who have been given an everlasting righteousness and who are right now seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realm. See, if we remember that, that when we get to verse 6, we know it can't actually mean what it looks like. That our salvation is somehow contingent on our obedience. If we know we have everlasting righteousness, we are seated in heavenly places, this is a done deal, then I have to say, okay, I may not understand that verse, but I know what it can't mean. (laughs) Sometimes that's what you got. I don't know exactly what they were trying to get at there, 
but I know in who I am and believe. I am safe in Christ Jesus. So spiritually, we are already in heaven, so we don't ever have to fear losing our eternal home or our Savior because we already live there in our everlasting righteousness. I love that, everlasting righteousness. So neither we nor those people back there had any need of Moses. <laughs> but they were raised with Moses. They're so comfortable with Moses. He's such a big deal. <laughs> but the writer said, no, we need all of the old covenant, not just the sacrifices. Moses needs to go bye-bye too. <laughs> because Jesus really is better. So let's consider Jesus. Let's put our focus on Christ and thoroughly examine. That's what consider means. Thoroughly examine who he is and discover, that's also included in consider, discover just how wonderful Jesus is and how wonderful our so great salvation really is. <laughs> and Jesus is so wonderful that he holds the two most important positions of authority in the life of an old covenant Jew. He's aiming at Jews, so he's trying to renew their mind. Jesus is both the apostle and he is the high priest. Now, in the, in the mind of a Jew, the apostle was always Moses. And the high priest was always Aaron. That's why he's saying, nope, <laughs> they need to go bye-bye in your mind. We have Jesus and Jesus is better. Under the new covenant, Jesus perfectly replaced them both because they were always meant to be types and shadows of what would come later spiritually. The author knows that this replacement of Moses isn't going to sound right to the Jews of that time. It was God and then Moses. <laughs> so trying to let, get them to let go wasn't going to be easy. You can see how he words this. He's being very tiptoey, walking on eggshells to try to get the truth over to them in such a way that they won't be offended. <laughs> because what happens if you're offended? You fall away. <laughs> the Greek word apostle simply means one who is sent. That's all it means. We understand that biblically it refers to someone sent by God on a specific mission. We generally understand that the apostle was someone chosen by God as an ambassador of God, a representative of God, one who speaks for God, who knows God, and is sent to a particular people on behalf of God. And that was definitely the case with Moses. God chose him and sent him to Pharaoh. We can see that in Exodus chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And now, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And now go, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And he wasn't crazy about that idea, remember? <laughs> but the scripture also tells us that God spoke to Moses in a special way, but he didn't speak to anybody else. And we can see this in Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Here, Miriam and Aaron were corrected by God regarding them speaking against Moses for taking an Ethiopian wife. Starting with verse 6. And he, the Lord, said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision and will speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I will speak with him mouth to mouth, even clearly, and not in dark speeches. And he will 
Behold the likeness of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? <laughs> they didn't have a good answer. <laughs> so Moses was an apostle of the Most High. God chose him, God sent him, and God empowered him. He was sent by God to the nation of Israel to lead them out of Egypt and into covenant with the one true and living God. God says here, he was faithful over all of God's house. It wasn't Moses' house. Kind of sounds like that in our scripture, but it wasn't Moses' house. It was always God's house. And the word house in Hebrew means the same thing that it means in Greek. Just like in Matthew chapter 23, verse 38, where Jesus used the word house in reference to the Pharisees and scribes. Again, behold your house. See, God had already disowned them. <laughs> they had so refused. They had so hardened their heart. He knew they weren't going to turn back. Behold, your house, your dwelling, your family, your household, your temple is left to you desolate. I like this verse because it very clearly states that the temple, Jerusalem, and all the unbelieving Jewish people were no longer considered as God's house or household. But under Moses' administration, all of Israel and all that concerned the covenant and the people was considered to be God's house. It was the believing who were the ones who were in God's house, all of them. And God called Moses faithful over all of it, meaning that Moses was true and steadfast and worthy of God's trust. Isn't that amazing? When we read this about Moses, we don't hear anything about him hitting the rock. <laughs> Because he's trying to say, you have to understand, yes, yes, he deserves honor. Yes, he deserves recognition. Yes, he was faithful. But Jesus is better. Everything under the Old Covenant was set in order as types and shadows. Types and shadows of everything that would come later through Christ. And the truth is, we wouldn't have understood Jesus coming and what he did had there not been the Old Testament. And Moses knew that. Moses knew that God had revealed to him this was the groundwork for what would come later. He knew. <laughs> he wrote Genesis. You remember the, <laughs> in Genesis where uh, God says to them, someday there's going to be one who's going to stomp on Satan's head? Moses knew that everything he was doing was for that time. That he was part of the process, but he was not the answer. Moses didn't have a problem with giving God the Father and Jesus, if you will, glory. He understood he was never meant to be the answer. Deuteronomy 18.15 says this, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. He knows he's prophesying about what would be known as Jesus. And he's telling them, you're going to have to stop listening to me. You have to stop listening to Moses and start giving superabundant attention to the prophet who was Jesus. Moses had led Israel out of physical bondage and into physical freedom through faith in God's grace. They had no covenant. <laughs> it was all by grace. <laughs> but they were still in spiritual darkness. They were still in spiritual bondage. They were still sinners living in the kingdom of darkness which is why they needed the sacrificial system a means of managing their sins. When their sins were covered, they could live in God's blessing and goodness, which is what God always wanted for them. God provided a way 
for us to understand what it is that Jesus did. But Jesus, as the apostle, was the Son of God himself, sent from heaven to earth. That's the sent one. Sent from heaven to earth. Specifically, again, to the Jewish people. So he's saying, compare the two. See, they are alike, but Jesus is still better. (laughs) And Jesus, as God's personal representative and ambassador, brought forth the kingdom of God with him. He wasn't just one who was sent. He was one who brought the kingdom actually with him. Ambassadors usually give their kingdom someplace else and come and present themselves. Jesus brought the kingdom with him. (laughs) And that kingdom has power. So through this kingdom, Jesus revealed to Israel who the Father really was. What he was really like. He wanted to go around healing people and cleansing lepers and raising the dead. That was God's heart. That was always God's heart. But in Israel, their hearts were so hard, they never saw God for who he really was. So Jesus, too, was chosen by God and sent to the nation of Israel, just like Moses. Jesus is the first human being, though, to be one with the Father and to have a perfect understanding of who the Father is and what he's like. Jesus knew the Father's voice like no one else. Matthew 11, verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father. I love that. No one. No one back there knew the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That was Jesus' main mission, really, is let me show you what I'm really like. I'm love. I'm goodness. I'm kindness. I'm compassion. See me for who I really am and for what I really want for you. (laughs) Jesus' relationship with the Father was way better than what Moses had. It was far more personal and intimate. They knew one another. They were one with each other. And that had never been done before. Jesus' purpose wasn't just to lead people into a new way of worship, which is what the Israelites had, a new way of worship, a new covenant. It was his mission to provide an eternal covenant of grace, a so great salvation, and an everlasting righteousness through his death, burial, and resurrection for everyone. His ministry wasn't just to and for Israel, it was for and to the whole world. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus told us what his mission was. He was to seek and to save. I love save, sozo. He says, I want to sozo you. I want to sozo everybody. (laughs) I want to save, heal, deliver, provide, protect, and make whole. This is what I want for you. This is my heart for you. Inside and out, not just physically, but spiritually and physically. (laughs) And then he says in Matthew 20, verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I love the word ransom, too. These are probably my two favorite uh, words in the Greek. Sozo and ransom. (laughs) Because the word is supposed to paint a picture for us of Jesus paying the price to purchase us out of the slave market of sin and death. The picture that always comes to my mind is us, human beings, as half-naked slaves, chained together, being mistreated by a severe taskmaster. That's the spiritual reality of what we were before Christ. And the price of our release from that taskmaster of sin and death was nothing less than the blood 
of the sinless Son of God. Jesus didn't suffer and die a horribly cruel death so that he could just leave us in the kingdom of darkness under the dominion of sin. But so much of the church preaches that that's exactly what he did. They say, you're not changed. You're still a sinner. No, we are not sinners. He took us out of the kingdom of darkness and he translated us into the kingdom of his, the son of his love. He gave us a brand new heart, a brand new spirit, a brand new everything. We are not what we used to be. We are completely and totally saved. The Father picked us up and moved us into the kingdom of his Son. We didn't even do it. He did it for us. We became free men who have been adopted as sons of God, those who rule and reign on earth through the power and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Jesus as the apostle is far better than Moses. (laughs) And Jesus is also our high priest, the high priest of our confession. The word is sometimes translated profession, and it means to say the same thing as. It's the same word Greek, profession or confession. Our profession is Jesus. Our confession is Jesus. He's the high priest of our confession. And our confession is Jesus paid it all. Jesus furnished the work. Jesus is my everlasting righteousness. Jesus is my high priest. Jesus is my perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the last and the lasting word of God. Jesus is the expressed image of my Father. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my protector. Jesus is my provider. Jesus is my so great salvation. (laughs) And I can trust him. I can trust him that he is able to keep me and guide me through this hard thing called life. I can trust him to keep me and not Moses, and not law-keeping. Again, verse 1 says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, focus on, discover the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus was completely faithful to the one appointed him. Even as, yes, even as Moses was faithful in all of God's house, see, they're trying to, Say, it's okay, you don't have to be mad about this. (laughs) For this man, Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that buildeth all things is God. In other words, all the glory goes to God. And Moses verily, means truthfully, was faithful in all of God's house, God's house, as a servant. This is a special word for servant here. It's not like a a bond slave or a regular slave. It actually is one who voluntarily serves out of great love and devotion. They're saying, yes, he was a servant. Well, he was a really good servant. (laughs) He wasn't just like anybody else. He was a special servant, which is true. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken of after. Again, Moses understood his place. The Hebrews didn't. Moses understood that he was like step one, and Jesus was step done. (laughs) Everything was only a type and shadow of the coming greater reality. But Christ is faithful. The King James doesn't put the word in there, but the topic is the faithfulness of the Son. But Christ is faithful as a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast in our memory the confidence 
which actually means assurance, and the rejoicing or boasting of the hope, the confident expectation of good, firm unto the end. Firm unto the end sounds an awful lot like Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Both can sound scary if they don't understand what he's talking about, both scriptures. Firm until the end. Now, it would have been nice if the author had just stopped writing <laughs> right after he declares whose house we are. We understand that up to that point, whose house we are, because it is the continuation of the sentence that makes believers nervous about their spiritual security. It sounds like they are not included in God's house unless they persevere until they die. <laughs> Which, really, if, if you don't know you're saved, <laughs> what if you find out you get there and you weren't? We're talking to Hebrews, <laughs> which is not what the author is trying to convey. <laughs> also, in the last verse, the author uses the personal pronoun we. You see, he hasn't done that yet. He's saying, hey, let's look over here. Hey, let's look at Jesus. This is the first time the author said, uses the word we. We are God's house. This is actually very important. You see, the house of God isn't actually a single person. Can I correctly say, I am the body of Christ. Is that an accurate statement? Not according to scripture. <laughs> I am a member of the body of Christ. Now, does my body belong to Christ? Yes. Okay. Can I say, I am the church? Not correctly. <laughs> because the word church is a plural word that means a whole bunch of people. <laughs> I am not a church. I am in the church. I am not the body. I am in the body. That's the key to this verse. Paul says he helps us with this. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, the Apostle Paul says this. Now he's talking to the believers in, in Ephesians. You have the Gentile believers and you have Jewish believers. That's the point here. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Those would be the Gentile believers. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Who were the saints? The Jewish believers. <laughs> Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure... What structure? <laughs> the body of Christ. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I am not a church all by myself. To be a church, I need others. <laughs> and God made it that way. He planned it that way. He says we all need each other. And specifically over in Hebrews, they needed each other. <laughs> you wanted them to be built together into a dwelling place. What is that dwelling place? The house of God. The church. The church is not a building. We together are the church. We together are the house. Whose house we are. We are if we continue. See, I can be saved and be outside the house. One of the ministers that we listen to, he's an evangelist, and he goes around preaching from place to place. He doesn't have, he's not a pastor. And when COVID was going on, he said, you know, I kind of like it. 
<laughs> I can sit home and I can minister through Facebook and on video and YouTube. He says, you don't have to deal with people. He says, I kind of like it. He's actually kind of a shy person. And he's like, this is, this is my favorite way to minister Jesus. <laughs> and God said, you're missing the point then. Because it's not about you ministering. It's about people receiving. He said, your main responsibility as a believer is to love. Who are you going to love when you're sitting at home? <laughs> he got it. Oh, they don't just need to hear the word. I need them. I need what they have to give. I need their love. I need their fellowship. I need them too. That was God's point. The church needs each other. As believers in Jesus, these wavering Hebrews needed to continue to stay within a believing community. A believing community in Jesus, not the Hebrews. And they were to let the Holy Spirit grow them up. And that's an idea you see much in the book of Hebrews. They were all babies, he tells them. He tells them. The whole point of being together is to grow by helping them to be established in the grace of God and in the faithfulness of Jesus. So the exhortation is to persevere by staying in a believing community. In other words, they needed to be part of a church. <laughs> they needed to be part of a community with other like-minded believers who were also part of the household of God. So this passage of Scripture is not about whether someone is saved or not, but about where will we look to, who will we look to in times of distress. These Hebrews were tempted to go back to looking to Moses. And that's why the author's like, no, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus. Consider Jesus. How faithful is Jesus? Does he understand suffering? Jesus knows far more than Moses. <laughs> Keep your eyes on Jesus. The Jewish believers tried to go back to Judaism as a means of saving their life. They would actually physically die because everything was going to be destroyed. But if they held on to their confidence, and that's what that word means, assurance. They held on to the assurance that they had the everlasting righteousness of Jesus as a faithful son over all of his house. He is the one who will protect them. He has a way through. He has a way to victory. He has a way to bring you through no matter what it is. Don't look to Moses. Look to Jesus. <laughs> the Old Testament Israel did not enter into what God promised. God said, here's the promised land. And they got there. And what were they tempted to do? Be afraid. Be afraid of what? That they're going to be eaten by giants. <laughs> they were afraid of death. And because they were afraid of death, they said, now let's not go in. He's talking to Hebrews. He said, I want you to see this. Don't do what the saints of old did. Don't let your fear cause you to not enter into what I have for you. I have safety for you. I have salvation for you. I have provision for you. Looking unto Jesus, <laughs> he is the way through. Now, what's interesting about the Old Testament saints is they then had to wander around for, what, 40 years? <laughs> but they were still God's people. God didn't abandon them because they made a bad choice. <laughs> God still took care of them. He fed them every day. He took care of them all the time. 
He never abandoned them because they didn't want what God was offering. In Jesus' day, the Israelites were doing the same thing. They were saying, no, we don't want to do it that way. We want to do it our way. Your way is bad. <laughs> but they didn't stop being God's people. We don't have to be afraid that somehow we're going to do something that he's going to kick us out. That we're not going to be part of his family anymore, part of his household anymore. We have everlasting righteousness. He's crazy about us. He loves to show off on our behalf. He loves to be our answer and our provision. He loves to show us how much he loves us. He loves to show off for us. And that's the point of this part of Hebrews, is to try to convince those who were tempted on going back to the old ways to finally give up and let go of Moses and not look to Moses to protect them and save them and provide for them, but to look to Jesus. Because he's faithful, especially in the midst of suffering. Amen? Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word, that we are yours. We are completely yours. You're our dad, and we're your problem. <laughs> and you love us, even if we are a problem. <laughs> you love us, and you're crazy about us, and you just want us to believe in how good you are, how faithful you are, that you are always the answer. You are always the way through. Father, to help us to just set our eyes on Jesus, to fix our gaze on Jesus, and this so great salvation. You didn't just save us spiritually. You also have saved us physically. We're still here. <laughs> we thank you, Father God, that that's who you are. You love to save us, to make us safe, to make us whole. And we thank you, Father God, that that is what you are always doing. You're always drawing us back to looking at who you are, what you've done, and that we are simply recipients of a so great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.